Good morning, Forest View. It is good to be back. It is good to be home with you all. Some of you will know that Paul and I have been away at West for the past month or so. We were helping out at a small Bible camp in south, southeastern Alberta. It's actually the Bible camp I grew up at. And I did bring some photos. So we were the camp hosts, kind of like camp managers. Now, there's some cool things about this camp. First of all, it's in the middle of a farmer's field with a barbed wire fence that separates the cows from the camp. And in fact, there was some traffic the first couple of Sundays that we had to watch out for. For amenities, well, there's a field. There's also a homemade swimming pool, and that's about it. Um, it's also totally staffed by volunteers. So real grown-up adults take a week of their vacation to come and counsel at camp. So at girls' camp, for instance, we, the counselors were two grandmas, two moms, and four single women. And actually, we had one counselor who had to cancel out the day before due to a family emergency. So you know how it is in Christian circles. The call goes out, and someone uh, texted their mom, who was in church that morning, and said, um, this camp needs another counselor. Uh, would you be willing to go? And so this woman in her 60s couldn't stand the thought of eight little girls going without a counselor. So her daughter dropped her a pin on Google Maps. And this grandma, who had never been to camp before, showed up Sunday night ready to counsel. And she was great. We worked alongside farmers and ranchers, teachers, a mine blaster, a farrier, an agronomist, missionaries to Mongolia, university students and parents. It was a neat thing. It's also free. There's no charge for this camp, and it's totally run on donations. So it really was a beautiful picture of the family of God working together for the good of the community. People speaking and being the truth and love of God for those who came. It was also just a good reminder for us that God is doing good things right across this country, and that his people are everywhere, often just quietly doing the things in front of them, trusting that God will use them for his good. So thank you for a chance for us to be a part of that. But we missed you. We kept up to date with social media and email. We were sorry to see Jefferson take a new job, but thankful for his time here and for his new position. We were thrilled to hear that Kayla and Ryan got engaged. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> And that he'll be taking on youth, and that Nicole Roblin will be looking after our youth. And I just think these are two great people who know our youth and have already been taking care of them. Um, so to have them on our team is so great. And then for Kayla, that she's coming on as our permanent children's director, that is a gift. She's been so great in the past that we can't help but be excited about the future. And Doug's in Kenya with Vision Ministries, and we can continue to pray that his time there will be meaningful and helpful. And like Cole said, believe it or not, the renovations are happening. <laughs> they are finally happening. This is good. Um, and then in terms of a lead pastor, it seems like things are underway. The search team's been busy uh, fielding candidates. They've even done some interviews. So we can continue to pray for guidance and wisdom there. And we can look forward to hearing more in the next few weeks, months.
So I think that brings us up to speed. I'm sorry to have missed hearing the sermons on the Psalms with you, but I've been listening online and I feel like we're on the same page. In fact, I listened to um, Mark's and Lois's Friday and Saturday and I thought, oh, I'm basically saying what they're saying in lots of ways. (laughs) But my sermon was already written, so this is it. Um, So carrying on with the Psalms today, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 23. I know this is probably the most familiar Psalm out there, but I'm going to trust that the Spirit is going to give you something fresh this morning. So, let's read it. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs, oops, my cup, oh, sorry, you did that, didn't you? Thank you. (laughs) Um, You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we begin. Most gracious God, whatever it is that you have for us this morning, prepare our hearts and minds. May we receive your truth and love and grace with our hearts wide open. We are here with you together as your people, and we pray. Amen. So Psalm 23, this is a psalm about God taking care of us, just like a shepherd takes care of a sheep. So let's talk about this metaphor of sheep and shepherd, and what is this saying about God being our shepherd? Most of of us here this morning are not into agriculture. We may own dogs and cats, maybe a few hamsters, but most of us probably don't own sheep. So this metaphor may not mean a lot to us. It would have been incredibly meaningful to people living in ancient times. They knew that shepherds take care of their sheep. They tend to the animals, they're attentive, they give care, and there's a sense of love and protection and security. So why doesn't the Bible just say that? Why this metaphor? And just as a brush up on our English terms, metaphor means a figure of speech that describes an object or action in a way that isn't literally true, but helps explain an idea or make a comparison. And we do this all the time. Like we may say life is a roller coaster or that idea is a band-aid to the situation. We use metaphors to describe someone or something in a more complete way or to capture something about that person or thing that's hard to describe otherwise. And the Bible's full of metaphors. Jesus himself describes, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, the bread of life, the true vine. Jesus calls us sheep, branches, salt. He calls the evil one a roaring lion. Now, these aren't literal descriptions of who God is or who we are. And of course, truth doesn't have to be literal in order to be true. These are true statements about God, but they aren't literal statements. Jesus isn't a loaf of bread. He's not a lantern or a flashlight. And we're not sheep or branches or salt. But these metaphors certainly help us understand something about God and something about we are. 
they make a comparison with something we know so that we can fully understand something that we don't know. And this is what I love about God, is that God will go to whatever lengths to help us know him. He'll say it this way, and then he'll say it this way, and then he'll try it again another way, whatever it takes to increase our chances of getting it. One author says, dignified or not, believable or not, ours is a God perpetually on bended knee, doing everything it takes to convince stubborn and petulant children that they are seen and loved. It is no more beneath God to speak to us using poetry, proverb, letters, and legend than it is for a mother to read storybooks to her child at bedtime. This is who God is, and this is what God does. Ah, so this is it. God will do whatever it takes so that we get it. And God wants us to know that he's taking care of us. He wants us to know him. He loves us. And he tells us that he is just like a shepherd taking care of his sheep. Lauren Winter, she's a Bible scholar from Duke University, wrote a whole book about the metaphors for God in the Bible. And she says, I think one of the reasons the Bible gives us so many different metaphors for God is to remind us that no single one of these images, or no 33 of these images, is going to capture who God is. We're constantly being invited by the scriptures to have our own assumptions checked and our own imaginations expanded around who God actually is and what God is like. So this metaphor in Psalm 23 of God being our shepherd and we are like sheep, God wants us to know who he is, to blow our minds a little, to give us a bigger picture of who he is and how he cares for us. So God tells us that he is just like a shepherd to us. And if you've ever known a real shepherd, you'll be amazed at what lengths they go to to care for their sheep. They're always thinking about weather and feed and grass and water supplies. It's kind of a 24-hour job. There's coyotes at night to worry about, holes in the fields that they could break a leg in. It's like taking care of children, but probably more work. They don't quit at five, they don't get weekends off. It is a full-time intense job, and that's the life of a shepherd. And then the rest of Psalm 23 is all about the ways that God takes care of us. He makes us lie down close to quiet water so that we can get hydrated and be refreshed. He wants us to be nourished and well-fed. His staff and rod, these are things that God uses to protect us from danger and to keep us out of trouble. And during the valley of the shadow of death times, God reminds us that he has not left us, that he's there, he's with us. And one day, things will be made right. Which, in light of the mass shootings in El Paso and Ohio, and then the comments and tweets from certain people in power, well, that day is looking pretty good. This psalm is about God taking care of us as individuals and as a community of people. And God reiterates his promise that he is with us, and one day, things are going to be made right. So God is all we need. That's the first line. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that's the thing, is that Jesus loves us. He wants, he wants us to have relationship with him. And he reminds us that the things that we most need and most want, we are only going to find in Jesus. And you're probably thinking, of course, of course it's Jesus. Um, but really, in our most honest moments, we will admit that nothing else is going to fill that space for us. 
know, this morning we could talk about all the things that we're tempted to believe will take care of us and the things that we pursue instead of Jesus. We could talk about independence, fat bank accounts, the pleasures that we work so hard for. We could talk about comfortable relationships and peace and security. We want these things. And these are not necessarily bad things, but we often use them to fill the space that only Jesus can fill. But we're not going to talk about those things today. That's a great conversation for another day. When I was praying through the psalm and asking what God wanted to tell us or what we needed to hear, this is what we got. So sometimes in our earnestness, in our desire to get things right, we think other things are going to be our good shepherd, that other things will take care of us and give us all we need, and especially within the church. And I want to suggest this morning that among us church to people, we mistake Jesus for two things, theological purity and moral perfection. Sometimes we convince ourselves that the things we know and that the things we do are going to save us, that will make things right. So the first one, theological purity. This is especially tempting for those of us who like to read and study and think. We're curious about specific issues and what theologians and philosophers have said in the past, what the current thinkers are saying. All of us have our favorites when it comes to this. We're inclined to this or that particular way of thinking and doing faith. And we're driven to get to the truth. We just want to know the truth. 100, 200 years ago, Christians were wrestling what God thought about slavery. A hundred years ago, it was the role of women in society, and then later the church. Now, we think about sexual orientation, social justice, evangelism. We wrestle with these things, and so we should. We want to know. We want to know what God thinks, and this is a good thing. Theology, the study of God is a good thing, and we as Christians have to take this seriously. How can we love someone that we don't know? So, of course, we want to learn and know. But sometimes in our pursuit of understanding and knowing God, we think that theological purity is the end goal. We think that if only we perfectly understood God and what he thought about everything, well, then we'd have it. But it's not theological purity that promises to be our shepherd and is all we need to know. It's not what we know, it's who we know, it's Jesus. And what are the implications of that, of thinking that theological purity is going to be our good shepherd? And Mark had great things to say about this in his sermon a few weeks ago. Of course, in our quest for this, there's going to be people who don't land in the exact position that we land in. And of course, especially in the poor way we currently do public discourse and our inability to disagree respectfully with the opposing view without name-calling, then someone must be absolutely right and the other person must be an idiot. Arrogance, the need to be right, certainty, division, disunity, all these ugly things. This is what happens when we place higher priority on what we know instead of knowing the person of Jesus. And when Jesus said that people will know we are Christ followers by the way we love each other, he knew that our unity would be threatened by our quest for theological purity. I heard someone say this summer about the church, so much emphasis on doctrine and so little on practice. 
And I laughed and said, I think that sums up church history sometimes. The thing is, is there's got to be some room for differences of opinion. And I'm not talking about core beliefs like the divinity of Jesus or the resurrection. I'm talking about all the other things that we have really strong feelings about. But maybe God needs to be bigger than us. And we need to approach God with some humility. Maybe God is like a shepherd. Maybe he's like a rock. Maybe he's like a woman in labor. Maybe he's like a loaf of bread. Maybe I don't have the complete picture. Maybe I'm missing something. And maybe the other person actually has something to contribute to the conversation. And maybe even the goal of theological purity is going to be unachievable on this earth by mere humans. There's something about the big picture of God and the body of God. When we were at camp, it was the first Sunday of boys' camp, and at supper I was sitting across from this scrawny, tough-looking 10-year-old boy, no shoes, no shirt, a messy mop of hair, and he leans over to his counselor and he says, I have a question. He says, about the world being made, some believe in the Big Bang, and some believe that God made it. But if you believe that God made the Big Bang, then isn't everyone on the same team? So why is there so much fighting? This is exactly the point of Genesis 1 is who, not when or how. And the important thing is to understand that God made the world and why he made it. But we can get lost in the secondary details sometimes. And we can forget it's not what we know. It's supposed to be who we know. So let's not lose the truth that we all belong to Jesus. We can have strong opinions, and let's face it, it is no fun to talk or argue with somebody who doesn't have strong opinions. And it's nice to have our favorite little soapboxes, and that's okay. I think that's how the Spirit works in us and grows us, teaching us things that we need to know. But at the end of the day, let's remember it's Jesus first. Rachel Held Evans, she's a theologian from the States who tragically died this spring, says this about the body of Christ. Oh. Jesus said, his father's house has many rooms. In this metaphor, I like to imagine the Presbyterians hanging out in the library, the Baptists running the kitchen, the Anglicans setting the table, the Anabaptists washing feet with the hose in the backyard, the Lutherans making liturgy for the laundry, the Methodists stocking the fire in the hearth, the Catholics keeping the family history, and the Pentecostals throwing open all the windows and doors to let more people in. We need each other in the family of God, partly because we help each other see God in a fuller, more complete way. So let's hold back some of our judgment on our brothers and sisters. Let's give some grace to each other when the Spirit convicts us of different things. And let's remember that Jesus trumps theological purity. Someone described the church, the family of God, as this. The church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus as the center. Theological purity is not going to shepherd us. It won't be all we need and want. And as necessary and interesting as it is, we need where theology leads us, which is to Jesus. 
The other thing that I think we churched people are tempted by is moral perfection. Sometimes we think moral perfection is going to be our good shepherd. That if only we could rid ourselves of any sort of sin, then that goodness will fulfill all our wants and desires. Now this fades a bit as we get older. Our disillusionment with moral perfection either makes us cynical or hypocritical or feeling hopeless. Time usually teaches us that this is a losing battle sometimes. But in the meantime, this temptation of moral perfection or sin management is real, especially for those of us who are earnest and self-disciplined. The problem is, is that this usually ends up being very self-focused. Joseph Gerzon, a priest and author, says this, We have to get past a preoccupation with our sins. The thrust of our spiritual life should should not be sin-oriented or Satan-oriented. It should be God-oriented. And we should concentrate on developing a personal relationship with God. And as that opens in our prayer lives, let God into our lives so that he can guide us. And as we get to know him, we cannot help but fall in love with him. And the intimacy and warmth of that relationship will deepen our insights and understanding and will help us outgrow our sinful tendencies one by one, getting rid of the underlying problems which cause the sins. Sin matters, and it has to be dealt with. And our job is to be open and willing, and it's God's job to deal with it. Sometimes, oh, here we go. Sometimes sin can feel like a -a whack-a-mole game. Stuff just keeps coming up and we're tired. It's an exhausting game. So instead of moral perfection or managing our sin, what do we do? We're supposed to act different because of Jesus. And if we're not concentrating on our sin, well, then what do we focus on? And the answer is Jesus and his love for us. And then in turn, our love for him and our love for neighbor. My calling is to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus himself said that the rest of Scripture can be rendered down into these two commands. If love was Jesus' definition of biblical, then perhaps it should be mine. So what if love, instead of moral perfection, was Jesus' definition of biblical and definition of moral perfection? Some of us are going to shake our heads and say, love, love, love. Really? Really? Is that the gospel? What about truth and judgment, the punishment of evil, and standing for something? Are we really going to reduce the gospel, the Bible, to love? And I want to suggest that some of us probably have a rather complicated relationship with love, especially the love of God. And Lois referred to this last week. But often we reduce love to something small, something nice. And yet John 3.16 tells us that the reason why God came to save us, it was love. And if love motivated the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, then it's got to be something big. In our crooked way of thinking, we have twisted love into something soft, sentimental, and powerless. But read 1 Corinthians 13. Love here is strong, determined, relentless, powerful, good. 
It sounds like God. Think back to Psalm 23. His rod and staff, they comfort us. And this psalm is all about God taking care of us. But sometimes that's what grace and love look like, a rod and a staff. Correction and being rescued isn't all warm and cozy. Someone said that grace isn't about being wrapped in a warm blanket sometimes. It's usually more like being hit with a blunt instrument. This is the gospel, the good news, that God loves us. And it's not always a cute Instagram post. Sometimes it's a little more terrifying and unsettling. Sometimes it looks like this. This is a painting by Caravaggio from the 1600s. It's called On the Road to, D to Damascus, and it pictures Saul's conversion. Caravaggio was a bit of a rascal. And he liked to present things in a different way than people expected or were used to. And you'll notice that this portrays Saul's conversion experience as realistic, earthy, a bit humiliating, flat on his back, looking ungraceful and vulnerable, arms and legs splayed, next to the horse's back end. And yet this is a picture of grace and love. And it's not cute or warm or fuzzy. But it's God and his rod and staff rescuing Saul. And that's what God is. God is love. Moral perfection is not going to take care of us like a good shepherd. It will leave us wanting and needing. Love, on the other hand, is going to satisfy and sustain us. The love of God. And we need to let God love us and then in turn love God and love others. And that's the path to true righteousness and knowing God. So we're back at, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So if it's not theological purity or moral perfection, it's not what we know or what we do, but it's Jesus, so what do we do? And if Jesus is our good shepherd, and we trust him with all our needs and wants for everything, then we come as a little child. We let God shepherd us to take care of us. Joseph Gerzon says, the kind of prayer I'm talking about is a detached kind of prayer in which you're not looking for anything. You're just putting yourself in God's presence and sharing with him what you're feeling or what you're suffering. It is the kind of prayer when you just open your heart to God and say, God, I'm here. I'm not asking for anything, God. I just want to be near you and open my heart to you. So, so what? So Jesus is our shepherd, now what? I'm going to suggest two things. The first thing is that we can relieve the people around us from being God. Believing that God is our shepherd and he's going to take care of us means that we can give permission to those people around us not to be God. Sometimes we expect the people who love us to fill those spaces in our hearts that only God can fill. And human relationships are not going to fill the deepest parts of us. Henry Nouwen in his book, Clowning Around Rome, says that mature and healthy relationships require a respect for the space between partners. Fearful clinging rooted in the demand that those around us deliver more than they can give make it impossible for the relationship to flourish. Our need for affirmation, acceptance, sense of belonging, and affection can be first met by God, the author of love, instead of another human. So let's relieve the people around us from being God and fulfilling all our deepest needs and wants. They too are mere mortals, and we are all in need of outside help, and that's God. 
Secondly, I want to suggest that we become friends with the questions and not just the answers. In our pursuit of knowing and loving God, it is probably not going to be a straight and tidy road. There's going to be confusion and questions and surprises, but we don't have to be afraid of the questions. As we love God and get to know him, we are going to have questions. As we read the Bible, there's going to be things that don't make sense. I mean, Jesus, for one, loved riddles and stories and metaphors. The Bible has kept scholars and theologians busy for thousands of years. There's a lot there we don't fully understand. But if we remember that we've got Jesus as our good shepherd, those questions, those doubts can actually help us. They can actually help refine our faith, sharpen our convictions, and help us see God more clearly. I, I want to read you one person's struggle with this, and it's a bit long, but, but I didn't want to cut it, so just bear with me. With the best of intentions, the generation before mine worked diligently to prepare their children to make an intelligent case for Christianity. We were constantly reminded of, of, our, of the superiority of our own worldview and the shortcomings of all others. And we learned that as Christians, we alone had access to absolute truth and could win any argument. The appropriate Bible verses were picked out for us, the opposing positions summarized for us, and the best responses articulated for us so that we wouldn't have to struggle through 2,000 years of theological deliberations and debates, but we could get right to the bottom line on the important stuff. The deity of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, the role and interpretation of scripture, and the fundamentals of Christianity. And as a result, many of us entered the world with both an unparalleled level of conviction and a crippling lack of curiosity. So ready with the answers that we didn't even know what the questions were anymore. And so prepared to defend the faith, we missed the thrill of discovering it for ourselves. So convinced we had God right, it never occurred to us that we might be wrong. In short, we never learned to doubt. Now, doubt is a difficult animal to master because it requires that we learn the difference between doubting God and doubting what we believe about God. The former has the potential to destroy faith. The latter has the potential to enrich it and refine it. Where would we be if the Apostle Paul had not doubted the necessity of food laws? Or if Martin Luther had not doubted the notion that salvation could be purchased? What if Galileo had simply accepted church-instituted cosmology paradigms or William Wilberforce the condition of slavery. We do an injustice to the intricacies and shadings of Christian history when we gloss over the struggles, when we read Paul's epistles or St. Augustine's confessions without acknowledging the difficult questions that these believers asked and the agony with which they often answered them. If I learned anything over the last five years, it's that doubt is the mechanism by which faith evolves. It helps us cast off false fundamentals so that we can recover what's been lost or embrace what is, is new. Doubt can be a refining fire, a hot flame that keeps our faith alive and moving and bubbling about where certainty would only freeze it on the spot. 
I would argue that healthy doubt, questioning one's beliefs, is perhaps the best defense against unhealthy doubt, which is questioning God. When we know how to make a distinction between our ideas about God and God himself, our faith remains safe when one of those ideas is seriously challenged. And I sometimes wonder if I might have spent fewer nights in angry, resentful prayer if only I had known that my little systems, my theology, my presuppositions, my beliefs, even my fundamentals, were but broken lights of a holy, transcendent God. I wish I had known to question them and not him. And that's from a book called Faith Unraveled, how a girl who knew all the answers learned to ask questions. So we don't have to be afraid of the questions. Our own questions, other people's questions. And let's face it, they make us afraid. We so love certainty. But we know God. We know he's our good shepherd. And if the Psalms teach us anything, it's that God can handle our questions. The questions we have can serve to help us know and trust and love him in deeper and better ways. We can have full confidence in Jesus. And as we approach the table this morning, we come to eat and drink what the Good Shepherd has for us, which is himself, and his promise that we can find everything we need and want in him. If you've got questions, if you're afraid you don't have the right answers, if you've forgotten that what we know and what we do isn't the stuff that really matters, just come. Someone said that the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors and shouting, welcome, there's bread and wine, come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy, it's a kingdom for the hungry. So come, this is a table for the hungry. We're going to pray as the tables are prepared. Then you can come forward or back for communion. Let's pray. Oh God, our good shepherd, you promised to take care of us. It's not what we know or what we do, but it's you that we need. And as we gather around this table this morning, we get to eat and drink and be satisfied. Thank you for feeding us, for being our sustenance, for giving us life. We love you. And together, as your people of Forest View, we give thanks. Amen.